How are people coming to faith today? What do Christians and viruses have in common? How do we speak about Jesus in a society where words are cheap? And what's the good news of Jesus in a culture which says it's all about me? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall, Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Rachel Jordan-Wolfe. Rachel is the Assistant Director of Hope Together, and she was previously the Church of England's National Mission and Evangelism Advisor. And our question is, what does authentic evangelism look like today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Rachel, welcome to Talking Theology. Great, thanks for having me. Uh, Rachel, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell me about the role you were doing before you became Associate Director at Hope and, and, and tell us what your current role involves. Gosh, right. Uh, well, it's always how far to go back. My name's Rachel, uh, Rachel jordan Wolf, currently the Assistant Director of an organisation called Hope, which has a real heart for resourcing local churches in mission and evangelism. And previous to this, I was the Church of England's Mission and Evangelism Advisor, did the middle of the Church of England. I was in there like as an assistant for a bit. Uh, and then for the, um, so I've been in the middle of the Church of England for about 10 years, 10, 11 years, which was amazing. Um, and I've now jumped out to the kind of lightweight, catalytic organisation on the side, but both have a very similar heart and passion, which is to help local churches do mission evangelism and help people come to know Jesus. Tell us about where that passion for evangelism came from. It's great to uh, witness it, but what was your own story of faith and how did evangelism and become just a passion that the Lord's given it's you? It's really interesting. Isn't it? I, um, I think it's probably always been there, which is one of those strange things. So I was brought up in the Brethren Church in Thundersley in Essex. Uh, I was a gospel girl at the Gospel Hall. And I had um, great people of influence around me. So everybody who was around me, they I guess they loved Jesus. I just, and I kind of, from really young, I mean, there's a little tape recording of me singing away when I was three, singing songs to the Lord. It's really kind of cute. Um, so I had this, always had this understanding that God was with me, Jesus loved me, and that made sense of my world from a really young age. And so I just assumed that everybody else needed Jesus as a friend because I had Jesus as a friend and Jesus was a great friend. So why wouldn't they have Jesus as a friend? So I was always telling my friends that they needed to meet my friend Jesus. Um, and that was from a really young age and it carried on. And I think some of my most influential years were actually with my school friends. Uh, lots of my school friends came to faith. We had an amazing youth group uh, that I helped lead. Um, my first ever group was probably when I was that I led in church when I was about thirteen. That was a whole pile of three year olds who we used to go and collect off the local council estate in a minibus. Um, I used to help to teach them how to pray, how to know Jesus. If you want a challenge, work with three year olds. But it was amazing. So it's kind of always been there, um, and so I kind of feel that my job is just an extension. Lots of me hasn't changed from that person who loved Jesus and I want everyone else to know him as a friend and I want to help other people to be able to do that too. Now, when we think about evangelism, quite often we all bring our own ideas or our own experiences of evangelism. Somebody might say, well, I became a Christian on Alpha Course. Somebody say I became a Christian at school or on a camp. For you, is evangelism a kind of narrow term or a wide term and what does it include? Great question. One of the things that I did in my last role was I did a piece of research, you might have heard of it, called Talking Jesus. I did. We use it here in college. That's great. And that is because um, when it came to people coming to faith, 
and it came to evangelism and it came to answering questions about what does that mean and what does that look like and what is our strategy we used to all bring our own experience and then often the anecdote of the person we met on the bus last week and from that we would then create our evangelism strategy and I was like this is this is a bit weird why do if I was in a big company and I was in charge of sales and marketing there is no way that I would just make things up by the person that I last met in the store who spoke to me about one of their one of our products I just wouldn't do that I'd have this whole set of research and statistics I'd know how big my sales team was I'd know what people thought about my product that that I was trying to sell now evangelism isn't sales and marketing we've got the amazing God on our side who works by the power of his Holy Spirit but he has given us tools and some of those tools include research and so the Talking Jesus research really helped us to see an answer to some of those questions how do most people most commonly come to faith and then on the basis of that it's an awful lot easier perhaps for us to think about what is evangelism what does it include and so I've been speaking on that for some time and I just think that really helps us so for example if you brought up in a Christian family that's a really many of us come to faith 41% of us would say that was a key influence in our coming to faith if it's not that the most important way that people come to faith is through a Christian friend and often that's through someone talking to them Um, And so that's why we're so committed to people having conversations with others about their faith and Jesus. And just remind us, one of the interesting um, findings of Talking Jesus was just the number of people who know a Christian friend for whom faith is real. And that was, was that a kind of real eureka moment? Absolutely. So again, if I'd been a company, what I was looking for there when, when we wrote that question is I was looking for the reach so sometimes when I read the newspapers, uh, they seem to fill me with absolute doom and horror that make me think that the church is in uh, terminal decline. It's all over. There's three of us left. We live in Portsmouth and the lights are going out next week. But actually, you discover that 67% of the non-Christians in this country already know one of us who's a practicing Christian and they know us really well we are mostly their friends and their family so they're in really good relationship with us they drink coffee with us they go down the pub with us uh, they go to the gym with us they might be in the bowls club but we know them really well and that is the interface in which evangelism happens because the Christian faith is kind of like viral and so that's the best place for it so yes we have this extraordinary reach before we've started any project as a local church, before we've gone out there and, I don't know, um, been to any, any front doors and rung on the doorbells, before we've even started anything, we know 67% of the non-Christians in this country and we know them really well. And what's more, they like us. Tell us about that. That um, was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. So again, if you read the newspapers and you were looking for top traits of Christians, uh, we might come out with some quite negative terms. Um, you might think that we would come out with maybe narrow-minded, judgmental, homophobic. There's a whole pile of things that we might come out with as that what Christians are often portrayed with in the media. We're often said as judgmental people. But do you know what? The 67% of non-Christians who know a Christian, who obviously they're their family and friend, they like us. They think our top traits are friendly, caring and good-humoured, which is amazing. So we're the friendly, caring and good-humoured people, which gives us an incredible opportunity to share our faith. So they know us and they like us, which is absolute gold dust. And I have seen just those statistics alter rooms of Christians um, because it's almost like we have an earpiece on that tells us particularly perhaps what some of our dominant means of media have been talking to us about that says we're in decline, nobody likes us, we're judgmental. And it's almost like we close down, our shoulders hunch, we daren't talk to anybody about our faith because they're going to think we're one of those weird critical people. But actually when you tell them, do you know what, people know you and they like you, 
it's almost as if their shoulders even lift a smile comes on people's faces and their confidence increases and that's why I'm so passionate about that research because it's the truth and it empowers people and the truth sets us free so you've suggested there that before we kind of get too worried about the projects or the courses or the exact kind of nature of what evangelism looks like, most of all, it's a relationship and it's a relationship with people who we know and yeah. who like us and who are interested. Yeah. As you kind of create that sort of framework for what evangelism is, it's primarily relational, it's primarily based with people we already know rather than standing on streets, perhaps. Where in the Bible do you go to for the sort of corroboration, the sort of evidence that this is the sort of way of sharing faith that is has always been part of God's pattern? Well, I think if you look at the explosive growth of the early church, one of the things that uh, the early church probably didn't realise is that God was even working, he's always working through what's happening in times and history. As they were persecuted, it threw them out of Jerusalem. And as they were thrown out of Jerusalem, they went on their way with this incredible message of Jesus and then they had to settle in new places and they had to get to know new people they had new neighbours they met in new marketplaces they went to new synagogues if they were Jewish and there they met new people and when they met new people they would have talked to them about this incredible person Jesus who they were following and guess what that had an amazing impact because those people some of them then wanted to also follow Jesus and so I think the incredible explosion of the early church is that some of it was with Paul travelling who was an amazing preacher and he did an extraordinary job and some of it was also this sheer craziness of the persecuted church being pushed out into other places and wherever they went the church often followed trade routes for no surprise because down the trade routes went human beings and wherever we went these Christians these early followers of Jesus with this extraordinary message of Jesus they talked to other people about Jesus and other people got interested so I still think the apostle Paul is amazing and what he did is extraordinary and we still need apostles and we need people who will break new ground start new things but when he did he would leave a community of people to be a witness wherever he went and then their job was to be witnesses wherever they were and to talk to people in the marketplace and when they got persecuted again that would scatter them or again their witness would go very public at that point and people knew who these people were so it was all again very very viral and that's kind of how it spread and how it keeps spreading now sometimes people do need to go specifically they're called to a specific group of people because nobody's actually got there yet and that's sort of like we still have pioneers today. And even from our research, we know that 67% of the population know one of us. We can actually break out some of the communities who perhaps don't know someone. And that's where we maybe need to send a missionary, even in this country, somebody to start building those relationships and getting to know those people. But in other places, we're already there and we're already in relationship with the right people to be doing mission evangelism, like from the moment we wake up come back to that in a moment in terms of the new testament one of the things that always intrigues me is that for all the letters we have written to churches which paul himself planted corinth galatia places like that we also have the letter to the romans which we know paul didn't visit and of course we don't know how the the people of rome were evangelized other than we assume it was done in relational terms and that's even in the new testament we see this variety of the apostolic and the friendship the relational probably going hand in hand yeah just people who went and they were great and they of course they'd have gone to rome Rome was a hubbub it was a middle place it was a busy place it's like London and it was a place that people would have gone to and gravitated to and some of those early Christians said of course they'd have ended up in Rome and they would have spoken about their faith let's address the people listening to this podcast who think well yeah probably I'm known by a whole bunch of people I'm perhaps not called to go somewhere entirely new but I'm called to be where I am what are the things about God that they that we need to remember to help us be viral with our faith One of the things is I think we can be really confident that we know that God wants to reach those people. 
So his confident plan from the beginning of time is to reach people with his love and his power and his message and his hope. That's what he's doing. And he loves them more than I love them. So I might think that I love them and I really care about them. You know, have you ever offered to pray for a non-Christian? And they've asked something for you to pray about. And then you say, I will pray about that. And then you, you start telling the Lord how important it is that he answers their prayer. Because if he answers their prayer, they're going to understand. And it's like the Lord, uh, excuse me, I got here before you. I love them more than you in the first place. You can be confident that I am working with you. I'm working through you. And so we're not the first person on the scene. God got there first. God loves those people more than us. God's heart is for those people. And God has chosen that we might be in relationship with those people because he wants us there as his witness and as his person. And sometimes that will be tough. Sometimes people don't want to know. Sometimes that could even be awkward. But Paul ended up in prison sometimes. That was pretty awkward. Um, We don't often end up in prison for our faith. We don't often end up beaten for our faith, thrown out of towns for our faith. We just, you know, we might not be quite so liked necessarily with some people, but with other people, we'll be the light, the life and the hope that brings them through all the way. And we know statistically that there are people there who actually want to know more about Jesus. And so one of the things I always say to people is, say out of a group of five friends, you might pray for five of them and you're looking for the one who right now is open. And that might be through something that's happening in their lives that's making them open. It might be through a difficult experience. It might be just that they've had some kind of spiritual experience. It could be anything that's happened. But one of them is likely to be open. And so it's like you're going along and you're ringing on the doorbell and it's a hello. You're just letting them know that you were there. You're making sure they know that they're invited to things that you're going along to where they might meet God for themselves. You're making sure that the offer is genuine, real and authentic because it's coming through you and you are the best voice person. And they'll be really intrigued about your faith anyway. Because it's really fascinating. People of faith are fascinating that we follow God. That's really interesting, people. You know, when your friends ask, how do you pray? What's that like? What's the experience of that? So we need to be less afraid and more confident. And then also just sort of ring on the doorbell to see who's open. And it doesn't matter if somebody says, no, no, not for me, not right now. I'm not interested. It might be in a month's time when something happens to them, they're going to come whizzing back to you because they're going to want you to pray. So you just don't know at what time God is going to use you. But you want to make sure that people know that, if you like, the invitation is there, the offer is there, and that you've made it really clear that you're willing to talk to them about this stuff. One of the most misquoted phrases in Christian history is that from St. Francis, where he said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary, which I think we're pretty confident he didn't say. What's the problem with that sort of understanding about the call of God on our lives in terms of evangelism? Well... If you're not brought up in a Christian family, so one of the key influences to bring you to people to faith is 41% come, come to faith through a Christian family. The next most important thing is that you have a Christian friend and that they speak to you. So if we never speak, the chances of our friends coming to faith are really slim. Now, I care that my friends come to faith, so I'm going to speak to them. And I just want to tell you, it's not always highly successful. And I'm the evangelism advisor. Well, I was the evangelism advisor to the church thing. And now I work for an organization that does evangelism. So, you know, I remember one of my friends, she, she's come to Alpha and then said, oh, no, not really for me. Then she came back to help me with the food and then said, no, really not for me. It doesn't always work because I'm an expert in evangelism. But we are the most likely way that that person's going to come to faith. So if we never speak... God has put us there for that reason, for that purpose, because he really, really wants that person to know that, that he loves them and he's madly after them. So to not speak is like to not offer life, to not offer the most important thing ever, to not offer an eternal relationship with the living God. How could we possibly decide 
that we would dare to keep that to ourselves. And can you imagine what your friend might say if you get to eternity and you never, ever spoke to them? It's like having the most extraordinary gift and never wanting to share it. So, yes, we need to find our voice and we need to use that and we need to use words. And that is the way that the good news of Jesus has always spread. So finding our voice is important. What place do works or deeds have? And I'm thinking not only the everyday deeds of love that we might show, but also in terms of the social action, social concern, social engagement that Christians have been involved in down the centuries. What is the relationship between that and finding our voice for Jesus? I think they're really closely linked because I think we are known by what we do and what we say. You can't say God loves you but they're not acting in a very loving way. That's not going to work very well because it doesn't, if basically, that, uh, particularly in today's culture, authenticity is really important. So if I say that God is love, but I don't share my sandwich with you when you really need a sandwich, for want of a better term, then that's going to look very odd to you. So actually, we, would need, we need to do both. They, they go hand in hand because if we're just people of word, but our, if you like our deeds and our actions don't measure up to our words, that's going to be very strange. If God loves people, he has shown it. He's done the most extraordinary action. He died that we might know him and be forgiven. That's quite an extraordinary, lavish action. And so we are called to to also be lavish in our actions, which might call on us doing some really extreme things to love other people. But from that place, we can then, if you like, speak words. So they go hand in hand. And thinking about the society in which we live, you mentioned earlier that you know, we're not into sales, we're not into marketing. And yet you also recognise that, you know, actually what we say needs to be backed up by what we do. It seems to me there is a words and images are cheap, aren't they, today? There's the place is filled with them. And actually, as you say, what people are looking for is authenticity. What are the modes of speaking that aren't as effective? And what are the modes of speaking about Jesus which are more effective and which can speak into a culture where people are suspicious of messages and suspicious of being sold something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's why one of the big things is if I talk to my friends, I might do a better job (laughs) because I already understand their culture because I'm in that culture with them. Sometimes we're called to do cross-cultural mission and we have to really learn culture and that's really important. But because I am in a relationship with someone, I'm much more likely to get the nuance that might help them. I'm much more likely to use the words that might help them, to use an illustration that might relate to them, all of those things, because I understand them. And because they understand and they love and they know me, they're more likely to listen to me. They're more likely to be interested because they are interested in my life anyway, because they're my friend or my family member or my work colleague. So I think that really helps us that it doesn't mean that we can't do other forms of evangelism, which are, if you like, more cold evangelism. It it doesn't mean that they're, they're completely off the radar. But the majority of evangelism that's really effective is happening through those relationships. And because it's navigated through those relationships, it really helps us with the words that we use. Because we're so less likely to be really harsh when it's somebody that we love. We're going to work harder at what we say because we want to keep that relationship. And I think that's why it's so powerful and why it's a really good place for mission and evangelism. Strikes me that when Paul's called to bear witness to his faith in Acts, you know, when he's on trial and gives the various stories, he tells the difference that Jesus has made to him and meeting Jesus and what that was like. And he tells it in various different ways. I'm always struck by this sort of balance between the objective nature of the gospel and the subjective nature of the gospel, the difference between you know, what was true, what Jesus did, as you say, mm-hmm. when he died on the cross, and then 
the difference that makes for us. What do you think the right balance is in evangelism in those two? Again, it's probably who you're talking to. So we discovered, for example, when we asked people who had had a conversation with a Christian after that conversation, whether they wanted to know more about Jesus or experience more about Jesus, who these are non-Christians, and some people wanted to know more. So they wanted some facts. They wanted some figures. They wanted some something concrete. Jesus lived and walked on earth. That's what they were looking for. So I want some knowledge. And another group of people, they wanted to experience Jesus. So we shouldn't ever assume that the person we're talking to it's best to ask some questions (laughs) because we'll then find out something about them are they asking me questions about knowledge or are they asking me questions about what does it feel like and then we would match that to them so some people will come to faith more through their heads and some people are more likely to come to faith through their hearts and their experience one isn't right one isn't wrong if you come to faith more through experience you'll then learn some more facts about Jesus and as you get to read the bible you'll learn way more stuff and if you come to faith through your head you then are going to need to actually experience God to make that really come alive so but it just might be by personality and by who we are that people might lean one way or the other and we found that interestingly enough in our statistics so it's as much about personality and that's why the relationship matters one of the other things that strikes me as you look at kind of the world of the new testament is how evangelism was taking place in a multi-faith context people were believing a whole range of things about a whole range of gods how is that helpful for understanding our task of evangelism today particularly some of the nervousness that comes as a result in terms of are we being arrogant to talk about jesus in a multi-faith context is some of the biblical material helpful can it be of use to us yeah, I think it's all really helpful. I love it when um, Paul finds the um, altar to the unknown God and says, let me tell you about the unknown God. Let me explain that to you. That's really powerful, isn't it? And so he's always looking for cues that he can work from. And so again, he's he's reading the culture, understanding the culture, and then working from the culture back in. Um, so for example, we discovered that 29% of the population think Jesus is a prophet. That's not the entire Muslim population. But if you're talking to someone who's a Muslim, you're going to have a different conversation because they have come to the conclusion Jesus is a prophet. So you might better start from that and then talk, you can talk more factually. I had fascinating conversations with some teenage boys who were Jewish the other day absolutely brilliantly helpful actually when it comes to evangelism because they get sacrifice so they totally get it and I was explaining Jesus and they were like I loved it we have a story like that it's about Abraham and his son Isaac and I'm like yes that's exactly it that story is a picture of God and his son Jesus oh so we just had this cracking conversation because again they're coming from a different place so I could work differently with them and then in a different setting I've got might have somebody who's just got none of that knowledge and they're coming from a completely different cultural place and then I'm going to work with them differently because that just isn't where they're at and they might be more coming at things from a position of we need to tolerate everybody, I'm looking for authenticity, they're likely to quiz me on um, my experience. So they're the person who's going to ask me, like one of my friends, what is it like to pray? That's a very different question to Abraham and Isaac. And that's because they're coming from somewhere different. And so I think Paul was a great reader. He read where he was. That didn't always work. He often could get thrown out, things could go terribly wrong. And that wasn't going wrong. It's just that when the good news of Jesus hits different cultures and different places, actually, we should expect some backlash. So we often think if we did some market research after Paul had been in some of the places Paul had been in, we might not have always got very positive results. We'd have got extraordinary positive results from the people who came to faith. But some of the other people would have hated him. I mean, absolutely hated him. One sense is Ephesus. 
Yeah. Uh, the research in Ephesus would have been interesting, wouldn't been, it? After there'd been yes. the riots. And, yeah, after yeah. the riots. Some people would have been like, that absolute rabble-rousing should never be allowed back in the city. So sometimes I think that we might be a bit too friendly, caring and good-humoured because we're so cautious with our faith that we never want to cause offence because that in our culture today, causing offence is a problem that we're so cautious. But actually, we are. The good news of Jesus has actually always caused turbulence for want of a better word and sometimes even offense to people because the good news of Jesus is so challenging into some of our culture it's so counter-cultural when you really get digging as what it means to follow Jesus and be in a community of his followers it is like topsy-turvy to what today's world is saying with consumerism individualism my freedom of choice all of those things are completely they're head on when it comes to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go for it, but you are going to end up, however you are talking into those situations, with the greatest understanding, working through the culture, there's still a mighty cultural clash. Let me ask you a bit more about that. You talked about reading the culture that Paul did in Athens, and you've begun to sort of suggest some of the things we see in our culture today now, whether it's consumerism or individualism, autonomy. You talked about the way that clashes with the message of Jesus. What are the summer ways that Jesus is good news, though, in each of those kind of contexts, what's the good news of Jesus in a context of individualism, consumerism? The interesting thing is that some of those things have led to our problems. So we have radical individualism in our society. It's like rampant. It's the thing I can choose. You do you, me do me, you know, all of that stuff, which I know it says that I will make my own choices. Actually, when we talked to one person, he said, you know, I'm my own God. I'm my own best judge. And I'm like, whoa, do you know the pressure that puts on somebody? So then we have this rise in anxiety. We have this enormous rise in anxiety in our culture because people have now got to define themselves. They've got to find themselves. They've got to find their own best purpose. They've got to post their own best image of who they are and interpret that to the world goodness gracious it's exhausting people are exhausted and they are anxious because if they get it wrong what happens if they get it wrong what happens if they don't find themselves what happens if they don't get their purpose correct what if they can't work out what that is we also have that conundrum of people not being able to make any decisions because it can paralyze you because you're so anxious about getting it right once if you get it wrong then you can't make any decisions so radical individualism is fascinating and it isolates you so you get anxiety you get loneliness they're the two big curses currently in our modern world and the message of Jesus cuts right into them so it cuts through your individualism because he calls you into a community of the followers of Jesus. That is a radical call. All of a sudden, you can't just do me, do me. It's me and others trying to work out how we follow this person, Jesus, and the call of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. Oh, we don't like that word uh, in this today's culture. You put the word authority out there. It's really fascinating the way people react to the word authority because they don't want to follow authority because they are their own authority. But That leads you into anxiety, depression and loneliness. When you follow a community of Jesus followers and you work out life together because it is a communal call, you suddenly crack loneliness and you actually crack a lot of anxiety because you've got other people to run your ideas past. And ultimately, you've got a Bible, which is an extraordinary guidebook for life. It really helps. How should I live my life? Have you tried this book? Um, Let's have a look at it. What does this book say? And suddenly you've got an outside compass, which is actually a relief, because if you're just going to go inside the whole time for a radical individual viewpoint of the world, you're going to be exhausted, you're going to be lonely and you're going to be really anxious. And actually it's going to end up very empty because consumerism 
constantly trying to find what you want outside of yourself is going to leave you very empty. But Jesus is extraordinary because he comes in and he does that love, that purpose, and he gives us a family and a community in which to live life. So we can trust him to work everything out. He's actually in control. He's been in control from the beginning and he's still in control. Whatever's happening, when you read the whole story of the Bible, it gets so exciting. From pharaohs in Egypt, if you'd have been in that place, you'd have thought they were in control. They weren't in control. God was in control. Roman Empire, who's in control? The Roman Empire is God using that to work out the purposes of Jesus. Jesus, God is in control. Anxiety lifted. You can trust him. So it conquers that one and you're born into a family the minute you become a Christian. And although that's got some tough things to work out, if you've been a radical individual, everyone is searching for community because they want to live with other people. And you actually have to lay down your individualism and you have to follow Jesus and you have to root and you have to get committed to a group of people. But you lose loneliness, which is one of the biggest problems in our society. Rachel, you talked about your first experiences of evangelism as a, yes. as a schoolgirl and sharing your faith with your friends. What have been your more recent experiences of sharing faith that have fired your own faith and your own ministry? So I am part of a church plant in East London. My husband is ordained. We planted five years ago. We're in Shoreditch in the East End, which is pretty vibrant down at Brick Lane. It's a good place for coffee but you have to choose the right coffee. We live with all our interns, which is an absolute joy. And my niece and nephew also living in London. So we have a big community house. Yeah, it's mad community, but it's great. And we passionately love doing welcome and just inviting people into our community. So that is some people from church can bring other people into what we're doing. It's a really easy invite to bring people into a meal. We do an awful lot of food, which I think is very biblical as well, because the whole idea of the common table Uh, which I absolutely love. So I've got a lot of slow cooker recipes. So evangelism through the slow cooker, we could talk about that. So the good news of Jesus comes with a message to community and hospitality. And so we practice that a lot and have a lot of people into our lives where they can belong and then learn about behaving and believing um, from being around our dinner table. Our church is in a really, I'd never thought I'd say, but it's just in, in a really prominent church building. It's extraordinary. And so on my best half an hour, in the week is to go out pre-church with a box of chocolates and just stand outside our church building particularly now it's lovely because all the lights are on you've got purple lights inside and people are intrigued and they come and chat and so we get that opportunity to invite people in and staggering like like so not the week before had an amazing half hour just inviting people in who came in who'd never experienced anything like what was going on in our church in forms of worship, experiencing God. And I've seen many, many people encounter God just through that very simple invite, often with a box of chocolates. And I love it. One guy came and it was his fourth day in London. He'd moved from another country. He came in. He left, had another chat with me on the way out, said he was going to go to the pub, walked to the door of the pub just opposite, stood there, paused, turned around, came back and said, actually, I want to come. And he'd last been in church when he was eight. He came in, he did the whole service, he went forward, uh, was prayed for. We have a big meal after church, he came back for that. He then came back for fireworks on Tuesday, he was back this Sunday, he was back round for food and I'm like, Lord, you just carry on. Yeah, I need to stop but I get really excited about what I see God just doing in all those things. So yes, local church, inviting people in to the community and allowing them to experience God with us. Rachel, you've given us a brilliant survey about why evangelism is still so vital and why God is still at work. Thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you for having me.
You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.